Hi, I'm Mark Rotterman. Coming up in the spotlight, North Carolina's U.S. Senate race. Medicaid expansion gains momentum, and Senator Bob Dole passes next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Democratic State Senator Jay Chaudhuri, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Nelson Dollar, Senior Advisor, North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, let's begin with North Carolina's U.S. Senate race. U.S. Senate races are always big. They're especially big now when you have a 50-50 split between Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. Senate. And North Carolina's race was going to draw attention anyway because it's open. We knew fairly early on in Republican Richard Burr's last term that he wasn't going to run for re-election. So a lot of people have had a lot of time to think about who's going to run for this. Much of the buzz right now has been on the Republican side where the major candidates have been former Governor Pat McCrory, a Congressman Ted Budd, and former Congressman Mark Walker. Trump, the former president, of course, has come out in favor of Ted Budd, so is the Club for Growth. And the president has been involved in an effort to try to get Mark Walker out of the race to run instead for what would be an open congressional seat. Big meeting seat. down at Mar-a-Lago. Big meeting down there, although the most recent news is that Walker has said he wants to take a little bit more time before thinking about this. I think he saw that the districts now might be in play. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. On the Democratic side, the, the big buzz has been around former state Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who has won statewide elections before and came within about 400 votes of winning last year for the, the chief justice's race. State Senator Jeff Jackson is also in this race on the de Democratic side, but has gotten much less attention, much less traction. Uh, this, of course, is going to be a very important race, and we'll have to see what happens. We do know that on the Republican side, the Club for Growth is already out there bashing. They're in big time right they're now. They're in big time, really bashing former Governor McCrory. Okay, what is your sense, uh, Nelson, how is the primaries being delayed going to impact this race? Well, the primary is going to now be delayed by the North Carolina Supreme Court to May 17th. And what that does is it allows Bud more time to consolidate his base, more time to raise money, and, and most importantly, more time to raise build his, more advertising dollars. To raise those advertising dollars and to build that grassroots organization, which he really hasn't done to this point. And I think, you know, when you look at all of this nationally, the Democrats are suffering in the polls, inflation, and their messaging are their big issues. For Republicans, the big worry really is the quality of their candidates around uh, the country. Uh, what the Republicans cannot afford to do is what happened to them in 2010 when they lost three seats in Delaware, Colorado, and Nevada because they had rather exotic candidates at the time. Joe, how big a player is uh, Trump in the primary here? 
Well, I think it makes a big difference, even uh, all other factors about Donald Trump and kind of the unique nature of what he occupies currently in the American political landscape. Having a former president endorse you in a primary is a powerful thing. Gives you a way to establish a strong credibility and bona fides as a candidate, helps you build name recognition, helps you with base party voters. And I think that's the case here in North Carolina. And the benefit is, uh, in that regard, to Ted Budd. The question is, is a protracted primary going to benefit these candidates because it means you have to run a campaign longer maybe than you'd raise planned more on. Money. You have to raise Changes more money. Changes your advertising strategy. Well, and the enemy of politics and political campaigns is time because the candidates sometimes make mistakes that they would not have made if the election had been sooner rather than later. We'll have to see if that's a dynamic. Jay, talk to us about the Democratic primary. So in the Democratic primary, as Mitch mentioned, you've got uh, former Chief Justice Sherry Beasley that I think is really deemed to be the front runner now. There was endorsements by uh, Congressman David Price as well as uh, Congressman G.K. Butterfield. But I think Senator Jack Jeff Jackson's running a different and unique kind of campaign. He's got a 100-county visit. Uh, he's doing a lot of grassroots outreach. And I think the question about protracted primaries is an interesting one because it may be one versus money versus building grassroots support. Look, I I'll say on the Republican side, uh, what what happened in Mar-a-Lago to me illustrates that Donald Trump is still the kingmaker. It's remarkable that he can reshape the U.S. Senate race in at least five congressional races here in North Carolina. I don't even know why we have a Republican National Committee anymore. They should just relocate to Mar-a-Lago. Well, let me just tell you an interesting thing. If they head to head today by Rasmussen and other polls and Gallup shows that Trump would beat Biden. But I want to move on and come right back to you to Medicaid expansion. Looks like it's gaining traction. Well, uh, it, you know, as, as background, Mark, uh, the bipartisan $53 billion budget that was passed by the General Assembly and signed into law by Governor Cooper did not include Medicaid expansion. That was something that Governor Cooper had adv advocated both in 2019 and 2021. But the uh, budget bill does create an 18-member commission, nine members appointed by Senator Berger, nine members appointed by Speaker Moore. Uh, I think what's interesting here is that Senator Berger expressed initial opposition to Medicaid expansion because of the financial contributions that had to be made by the state and lack of certainty from the federal government, but he has now taken a different position, believing that the federal government will meet its obligation. And on the flip side, you have Speaker Moore, who said he didn't have the votes in the caucus to expand Medicaid. And I think what's interesting against all of this is you've got the Build Back Better bill that actually create that has additional carrots to try to get the 12 states that have not expanded Medicaid, including North what Carolina, to do that. What are your thoughts on the that. Build Back Better bill? Where do you think that is right now? <laughs> So look, I think that the Build Back Better bill is uh, has real challenges in the Senate. I think that uh, Joe Manchin is wielding a lot of his influence and in making sure that um, it, it gets scaled back. I mean, he's making an argument that we frankly hear from Republicans is that do we need to inject additional money to that might cause cause inflation. But there are a lot of good parts of it in, in the Build Back Better bill, including this idea of creating more carrots for the non-expansion states to um, expand Medicaid. And 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 I think that I think that the General Assembly leadership recognizes us going into next session, and I hope that there's an opportunity um, for real discussions and recommendation to come out from this legislative Mitch, panel. on Medicaid expansion, 90, most of that is picked up by the federal government, right? Absorbed by the federal government. Yeah, most of it's paid for by the federal government. The concern has been that that arrangement wouldn't last as long as had been promised because the, the federal government already pays most of the bill for Medicaid, but for the, the traditional program, the program serving those for whom Medicaid was designed, the percentage of the federal match is much less. And I think most people who've looked at this program over the years have said, look, the, the federal government is not going to continue paying 90% plus of the bill for, a, for coverage of people 
people who are less deserving of the coverage than those for whom Medicaid was originally designed. I think uh, Senator Berger is much less concerned about that now than he was. It'll be interesting to see if the House remains against it. Yeah, where is the speaker on this problem? Well, I think where the speaker is... Not to put is, him on the spot, right? Not to put me on the spot, but where the speaker is is where his caucus is, and he has represented the caucus extremely well, and what the advocates need to do is to make the business case, and they haven't done that with that House Republican caucus. So three key areas. One, they need to make the case that it will lower uh, health insurance premiums for everybody, that it will benefit... Uh, rural hospitals by paying for more uncompensated care and that it will help uh, small businesses be able to afford health care for their workers uh, in a very tight labor market. So that's really what needs to happen. The advocates need to make the business case for expansion. And in addition to that, the federal government has already put $1.3 billion, plus or minus, on the table as a sweetener for North Carolina. Nelson sounds like a Democrat. Jeff, wrap this up in about 40 seconds. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing to me is the provision in the budget relative to this 18-member committee says that it will study various ways to expand possible uh, coverage options for the state. The other thing is nothing compels it to actually be formed. And politics, if nothing else, is an organic science. And things may change in the relationship between the legislature and the governor that flavor whether or not the General Assembly takes putting together this group and coming up with a plan seriously. Okay, I want to move on and talk about a, a giant who passed this week, Senator Bob Dole. Your thoughts, Nelson? Yes, Bob Dole was the embodiment of the great American century. Uh, he really, he overcame uh, the depression in the rural heartland. He led soldiers into battle to defeat the Nazis. Uh, he reinvented himself when he was paralyzed in that war. And, uh, and it really ended a very promising athletic and medical career for him. Uh, so he forged a new path. He reinvented himself uh, into public service, twice leading uh, the majority in the United States Senate and was also his party's nominee, Republican nominee for vice president, and later for president. And, of course, winning the Cold War uh, along the way and reaching across the political uh, divide. Uh, not to he was a consensus builder. He was. He did not compromise his principles, Jay. Uh, what he did <laughs> was he found bipartisan solutions. So uh, he worked with Democrats to uh, strengthen the uh, social, uh, social Security program to save it for a generation, school lunch programs, uh, rights for the disabled. Uh, he was not perfect, uh, but he was a hero with sort of a Will Rogers uh, sense of wit. And he had that unique American ability to overcome and to reinvent himself. And that's really the genius of America. Joe, do you think a, a Bob Dole could get elected in today's <laughs> Republican primary? Boy, uh, I, uh, party? Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a great question. And part of the challenge is somebody like Bob Dole was a consensus builder, worked across the aisle, tremendous respect for the institution of of the Senate and his colleagues on both sides of the aisle. That kind of politics is a part of a bygone era, perhaps. I'm not entirely sure people like Jim Hunt or Jim Martin could get the nomination of their parties today. Both were incredibly loyal to North Carolina and the advancement of its people. But the, the, the definition of partisan and the way that politicians practice the art of politics has changed significantly. So I, I'm not sure Bob Dole could survive in today's political environment and get his party's nomination. Jay, your thoughts on Bob Dole? Well, I, I think to your question, Mark, uh, we really should celebrate Bob Dole's life and work because he, um, because of what he represents in a world of hyperpartisan politics. And I think as Nelson talked about, I mean, I think one of the things uh, maybe the public doesn't really, didn't really pay attention is really to the war injury 
injuries and the recovery that took him. He was in a body cast for for a couple of years, and then the pain and suffering he experienced. But also his ability to work across the aisle, as you mentioned, uh, school lunch programs, um, saving Social Security, American for Disabilities Act. Uh, I think it was fitting that I think he was only the 30th American now whose body rests under in the Capitol Rotunda. And to you know, as you said in the earlier remarks of this of this panel, uh, Joe Biden called him a real giant of history, and I think that's the way he'll be remembered. Well, you know, he loved vets, and he loved the uh, World War II vets, and he would go down to the World War II Memorial uh, when they would come on, the, on these honor flights, and he'd be there without any fanfare at all. Mitch? Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's the, the point that I wanted to make. I think one of the things that we see that's very different about our politics today is that you don't have that group of World War II veterans right. on both sides of the aisle who basically had that shared common experience. They yeah. might disagree on how much government should spend on this or that, or whether this program made sense, but they all had that bond of having fought for their country in a very devastating war. Well, you know what he said. He said that, you know, they fought as hard as they could, against each other from nine to five or whenever the session was in in the Senate. But then yeah. after that, they were friends after five. And I think that's missing in today's politics. It is missing. And I think that memorial to World War II, if you ever go to D.C., you need to visit that. Bob Dole really spearheaded that effort, raising money from all across the country, from, and it honors veterans from the greatest generation at that memorial. It's wonderful tribute uh, to the sacrifice that was made. Yeah. Joe, wrap this up in about a minute. Well, one thing that Bob Dole was a champion of that it's not really widely remembered for was the Americans with Disability Act. And right. in the disabled community, he's considered a champion for bringing about some reforms to things that made it possible for disabled people to participate in our society and be able to support and sustain themselves in a way. Bob Dole did, did that very quietly, didn't bring a lot of attention to himself, but was one of the primary reasons why that federal legislation was enacted. Okay, I want to move on, come right back to you, talk about the Supreme Court. We're going to have some changes. Robin Hudson's not going to run again. Yep, Justice uh, Robin Hudson had made the decision not to seek re-election. In North Carolina, we have a mandatory retirement age for judges of 72. She will turn 72 should she win re-election in the middle of the term, and so decided to avoid that disruption to the court and just choose not to run again. Now, the interesting thing is there are two justices up for uh, uh, two spots open, uh, Sam Irvin IV, the grandson of uh, the late Senator Sam Irvin of Watergate fame uh, will also be on the ballot. He's decided to run for re-election, but Hudson's seat now will be an open seat race. Two candidates, both coming from the Court of Appeals. Lucy Inman uh, is a judge on the Court of Appeals, ran for a Supreme Court seat two years ago and lost. And Richard Dietz is also a uh, appellate court judge now in what will probably be the race that decides the balance of power in the Supreme Court. Now, these are partisan elections. We know the party affiliation of the justices. We'd like to believe that their disposition on matters of jurisprudence are not influenced by their partisan affiliation, but it's got to be at least a part of it, as Daddy used to say. <laughs> and so, in some ways, this will be a seminal race in 2022, even though judicial races tend not to get high profile, and most of the attention comes as a result of independent expenditure, outside groups that advertise judges generally not able to raise a lot of money for their campaigns, restrained so much by the judicial code of conduct in terms of what they can say and how they can campaign and those sorts of things. But I think this will be probably one of the bellwether races on the ballot in 22 in North Carolina. In 20, the Republicans ran the table and won every single one of the appellate seats on the ballot that year in what looks like is shaping up to be a red wave election, it may, the same may happen again. Jay, your thoughts? 
Well, I, you know, I think it's important that uh, to recognize the retirement of uh, Justice Hudson and what she represents in, in our state's history. I mean, I think for one, uh, she was the first woman elected to the appellate court without ever being appointed. I think that's a, a point that people don't uh, quite, quite remember. Uh, secondly, she was a champion for workers' rights. Uh, she authored a unanimous landmark decision that provided for uh, protections of law enforcement officers that was actually heralded even by the John Locke uh, Foundation. And she's also been an outspoken uh, advocate for the independent judiciary. And that may be rooted in the fact that in 2014, she was one of the first justices to run in the post-Citizens United era, where they did run ads against uh, justices where they said that she had sided with child molesters. But, uh, you know, I think her retirement lays a foundation for uh, Judge Lucy Inman of the Court of Appeals, as uh, Joe talked about. And that makes sense, because Justice Hudson, I think, is viewed as a mentor to Judge Lucy Inman. Mitch. I think one of the interesting things uh, we noted that you know the partisan affiliations of the justices now. Both times that Robin Hudson won election to the Supreme Court, she did not have to run in party labels because there was basically a, a pre period from the early 2000s up until the 2016-2018 period where there were no party labels. Both times Robin Hudson won, she did not have to identify herself as a Democrat. Had she run this time, she would have had to. But as we pointed out, she's going to turn 72 little over a year into what would have been an eight-year term, and in announcing her retirement, she said she didn't want to put her family and supporters through that, spend a year running just to keep the job for a year. Nelson, there'll be a lot of outside money in these races, won't there? I think there will be. There, there has been in the past. It's growing trend. And uh, just as you see right now with the redistricting cases being taken up by the state Supreme Court, that the, the, the focus now is local and the stakes are far, far higher. So right now you have a 4-3 Democrat majority uh, on the state Supreme Court. Uh, that could flip to 5-2 Republican. If you look at the Court of Appeals, it's currently 10-5 Republican. Uh, with the four seats that are up there, that could move to 12-3 Republican in this election. Okay, let's go to the most underreported stories of the year, Mitch. For good or for ill, despite all their fights on some other issues, Governor Roy Cooper and the Republican-led General Assembly have really come together during the course of the year on some big economic development projects, and we've seen that come to fruition in recent weeks. There was first the $430 million in incentives announced for a $1.3 billion Toyota plant that's going to be having electric and hybrid uh, batteries created in that plant. We're also learning about $100 million plus in incentives to help bring in this manufacturing facility at Piedmont Triad International Airport for a company that makes supersonic jets. Uh, so basically, yeah, the reason I say for good or ill, I have to say, because I work there, the John Locke Foundation is against targeted tax incentives. But this is the type of thing that politicians of all stripes seem to be for getting these big, major economic development announcements. Senator? Well, so you're against jobs, huh? So, all kidding aside, on, on the issue of jobs, really, uh, most underreported story of the year for me is actually data points that were uh, identified by Simon Rosenberg of the New Democratic Network, and he is, and I think that's something that, frankly, Democrats don't talk about, jobs, jobs, jobs. Joe Biden has created 5.9 million jobs. That's already three times as many jobs that's been created in the last 16, in the 16 years by the three Republican presidents combined. Uh, and if you look at jobs that have been created since 1989, 
40 out of 42 million jobs are created under Democratic administrations. That's 95% of all jobs created in 1989. And I think that's the most underreported story of the year. How do you sell that? Well, I think you talk about jobs. I think there's I think there's a narrative of inflation and jobs. I mean, I just I just don't think the Democrats are talking enough about jobs. But, yeah, but the, the jobs are coming back from the <clears throat> pandemic. It's not like they're like created. It's people who were sent home. Now they're going back to work. Joe, underreported. Well, interestingly enough, we just concluded the hurricane season, and despite people's obsession with the Omicron variant and inflation worries, this was the sixth consecutive hurricane season in the Atlantic Basin that had an above-average number of named storms, 21. Third time in modern history that we've done run out of names, there were so many storms. This is just an indication of an increased cycle of this kind of activity climatically. It influences North Carolina in many ways. We were lucky this season and didn't have a lot of significant events. I think it's inevitable if this pattern continues, and in all likelihood it will, a significant event in North Carolina from a hurricane basis is probably likely in our future. Nelson, underreported, please. Well, for 2021, the death of globalization. Uh, some leaders have been pining for a return to the U.S.-led global order that we essentially invented after World War II to resurrect the world's economy, prevent any more major uh, wars uh, occurring, and, of course, to defeat the Soviets. We succeeded beyond our wildest expectations, and we've essentially been coasting the last 30 years, looking more and more inward, which is America's norm, is to look inward. Uh, we're largely self-sufficient here in North America. Europe can take care of itself if it would do so. Uh, we've already disengaged from the Middle East. The Western Pacific uh, still interests us, and countries like Japan and Australia are on Team USA. China is not, and their success was dependent on the order, and now it's over. Are we largely self-sufficient when we have to depend on Taiwan and others for uh, chips and other things? Well, that's the reason why we're interested in the um, uh, Western Pacific. We're going to protect Taiwan. We're going to protect those chips coming from South Korea as we bring that manufacturing back and build those uh, chip fabs here in the United States, hopefully one here in North Carolina. Okay, I want to move on. Who's up and who's down this year, Mitch? I hinted at this in my underreported story. My up is bipartisan cooperation in the state government complex. Now, we saw plenty of party line votes, and Governor Cooper, with his latest vetoes, has now tied the single year record of 16 <laughs> in one year. But despite that, the biggest issue that. Uh, He's the, got a stamp. Yeah, but. We need yeah. to start giving vetoes names like that's her. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But, but uh, the biggest issue that legislators and the governor deal with is the budget, and we saw 145 of 170 state lawmakers vote for the budget this time. Cooper signed it. It was the first time he signed it, so bipartisan cooperation. My down, I've already mentioned him as well earlier, Jeff Jackson, the state senator who's running for the U.S. Senate, just has not seemed to be getting any traction. And now, with endorsements of congressmen for Sherry Beasley, that's just another hill for him. Jay? Um, who's up? Uh I think Joe Manchin's been up this year, and I think he's as well known a household name as Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. Will he and, run for president in 2024? Well, I, he, I think he said no to that, but I mean, they you all know, say that earlier. Uh, but look, I, I think he's up because he's absolutely played, has outsides influence in Washington. He's cut the $6 trillion Build Back Better bill okay. to $1.75 trillion, cut out the climate change aspects, free community college. Uh, this is a guy that lives on a yacht 
and continues to have higher approval ratings compared to West Virginia, where his, where Donald, Joe Biden's approval ratings are 32 percent. And who's down? Uh, democracy in America. Uh, President Biden just held a democracy summit, and okay. according to according to two organizations, democracy is backsliding uh, in in our country. And I think that's a I think that's a real concern. Joe, quickly, who's up and who's down this year? Who's up? I think as we come into the end of the year and start the election year, a lot of new faces will be on the ballot as a result of retirements. Who's down? Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. So a tough year, some uh, embarrassing trips abroad, trouble within her staff. After the midterm election, the questions will begin to be raised. Biden, the soon-to-be octogenarian, is he going to run? But if he chooses not to, I don't think Vice President Harrison is a lock for the nomination. Nelson. Uh, who's up? The United States Supreme Court. They survived attacks from the left and the right in 2021. They've dodged so far congressional court packing schemes and a presidential commission that had a 300-page report with no recommendations. Look for several landmark decisions in 2022 from the court. Down the Como brothers, uh, former Governor Andrew <laughs> that was Cuomo an easy and, <laughs> and former CNN anchor Chris. They entered the year on top of the political and media world, and at the end of the year, they exit having lost their jobs or book deals, uh, a future shot at the presidency. Although 2022, Chris is going to be suing CNN for $18 million. Okay, he may come out okay. <laughs> What's the big headline next year, Mitch? Is, is Andrew Sonny or Michael? That's the big question. <laughs> My headline, uh, two, years, two years after the pandemic started, COVID's aftermath still affects elections in multiple ways. Jay? Look, I think the conventional wisdom seems to be it's going to be doom and gloom for Democrats next year. But I think the alternative headline is we talk about jobs, we talk about rebooting the economy and things back will come back to normal. I think the headline next year is Democrats mitigate any losses in the midterm. So you're going against uh, conventional wisdom. I would say conventional. That's certainly what mainstream headlines uh, okay. are. Headline yeah. next year, conventional wisdom is absolutely correct. It's a big red wave right after Labor Day. The predictions are Republicans take control of the U.S. Senate and the House. You really think so? I do. I do. I think Republicans probably get about 45 seats minimum. Nelson? War is the headline for next year. Uh, we're likely to see a major regional war start. We'll have some this decade. Most likely Russia, Egypt, China, potentially the Middle Happy East. holidays to you, Nelson. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, anyway, we got to roll. Great job, gents. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. Look forward to seeing you next weekend on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.